All right. Okay. So we discussed yesterday why there is a second oath to not be wicked, seemingly if that's already covered by the first oath of to be a tzaddik. Yes, do you recall this? The idea being is that being a tzaddik is something which is not entirely with a person's control, nor do they have full choice in the matter because they may not have the soul that would enable them to be worthy and even being worthy does not guarantee that you receive the gift of the divine bliss that makes one a tzaddik. And we spent most of the time talking about the, this point of view of aspiring to be a tzaddik, but as a minimum expectation, not being a Russian, and how that has to do with our self-conception of who we are in an accurate or inaccurate way. And then we ventured off into other interesting side points. Yes? Okay. So now we are going to be continuing. Um, we're on the right-hand paragraph, second line. So regarding the second thing, not being wicked... Here, the right of choice and freedom is extended to every person to check the drive of his heart's desire to conquer his nature so that he should not be wicked even for a moment throughout his life, whether in the realm of turning away from evil or in that of doing good, being that there's no good other than Torah. That is the study of Torah which balances them all. So when it comes to not being wicked, we do have full choice in the matter. Right? This is something we spoke about at length, that the... The only reason why a person is sinful is because they have that spirit of folly. And what is required to remove the spirit of folly? The choice to remove the spirit of folly. Recall this discussion? Yes? Okay. So. What? Okay. So if the chapter ended here, what would the takeaway message be? The takeaway message would be that we should aspire to one thing, being a tzaddik. But since we're not necessarily equipped, we don't necessarily have the ability to ensure that we will be a tzaddik, we're given a secondary obligation, which is the bare minimum of not being a Russian, not being a wicked person, which is something that we do have the ability to do. Yes? So if the chapter ended here, then you would say, okay, well, my goal in life is to try to not be a Russia, and like, you know, I should maybe aspire to be a tzaddik, but realistically, it's not happening. So I'm going to put all my efforts into... The bare minimum, because that's what is likely. Yeah. This creates a problem because are we under obligation to be a tzaddik? Yes. So the remainder of the chapter is dealing with how, even though you may not actually have the choice to ensure that you are a tzaddik, nonetheless you are not exempt from the obligation to pursue being a tzaddik. So there is a common myth that the Alter Rebbe's big takeaway in Tanya is you should try to be a Bainani, I am not a Russia, and don't worry about being a Tzaddik. This is wrong. Who said that? Many people. Should we ask the Shluchas? Did you ever hear this idea? Yes. Yes. Is it correct? No. No. Right? Because as the rest of the chapter goes on to tell us, are you supposed to try to be a Tzaddik? Yes. Yes. You're familiar with the game of telephone where somebody says something and somebody else says it to the next person and it somehow it gets distorted? Okay. If you fail to be a tzaddik, should you consider that to be a failure of your service of God? No. 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 Oh, so this is, this is the point. In other words, there's a very big question whether I'm looking retrospectively or I'm looking prospectively. Retrospectively, looking back, I'm saying, okay, I have not achieved a state of divine bliss and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the 
corollary of disdaining evil, right? I do not feel disgusted by things merely because they're ungodly. Is that an indication that I'm failing to serve Hashem properly? No, it's not. Because achieving that is not something entirely within my control. On the other hand, if I say, well, you know, from time to time I violate the code of Jewish law, or I, I don't violate the code of Jewish law, but I do things which, while technically being within the letter of the law, are counterproductive to a relationship with God, is that a failure in my service of God? It is. And what's the only reason for that failure? That's not a reason. Yeah, it's not, I, I chose not to make it important because even the spirit of folly, which is what enables that to happen, if it's a question between the spirit of folly and my personal choice, what's going to win in that debate? So the spirit of folly is the mechanism by which it occurs, but it's not the true cause. I'll give you an example. Um, if, God forbid, somebody shoots a gun at somebody, yes. It is definitely the case that the gun is an enabling factor that makes that act of violence possible, yes? But it is wrong to think of the gun as the cause of the person's death. Why? Because the gun, right, the gun is not responsible. The gun did not choose to kill anybody. So it's true that a person who wants to kill somebody doesn't have a gun is gonna be much more limited in what will enable them to carry that out, right? And if you take a person and you deprive them of almost all weapons, they're very limited, right? You, know, you still have your hands, so. In a similar vein, if you don't have a spirit of folly, right, then sinning is not really feasible, right? What enables sinning to take place is a spirit of folly. But since the spirit of folly depends on your choice to embrace it or reject it, the real cause of the sin is not the spirit of folly, but rather... Uncomfortable, but nonetheless true. Good? Okay. Are there any questions about this? So retrospectively, right, there is a very big difference between the trade of the tzaddik and the trade of the bainani. And later on, the altar was going to actually say that a person who feels um, a lack of enthusiasm in service of Hashem because they have failed to achieve a state of being a tzaddik, is that stemming from a kind of an arrogance? That's, that's a major, major point in chapter 27 of Tanya. Um, but there's a separate question, which is prospectively looking forward, should I say, well, being a tzaddik is nothing that pertains to me, I'm going to merely focus on being a mania. I'm not going to worry about whether I actually feel any positive attachment to klipa, to unholiness. And I'm not going to worry about whether I genuinely delight in the presence of God. I'm just going to worry about the fact that regardless of how I feel, I'm going to do the right thing because the connection to God was important. Is that the appropriate approach to take, to focus exclusively on the trade of the Baini and abandon pursuing the path of the Tzadik? No. And that's what Alter wants to address. How can a person realistically put um, effort into fulfilling their obligation to attempt to be a Tzadik? Right? It has to be something which is which is something that you can do and it is reasonable for you to do, right? It, it's, it's constructive, even though if you ultimately don't become a tzaddik, it's not. not your fault, right? So you can see how that more sophisticated message can just get reduced to, you should just worry about being a bainani, right? If you repeat that message over several times and don't clarify it, broken, broken telephone issue, right? And again, sometimes the don't worry about being a tzaddik, worrying about being a bainani is not 
the wrong message. Anytime we're thinking retrospectively, anytime we're thinking of what have I achieved up to this point, we should not be bothered too profoundly by the fact that we're not a tzaddik. Whereas if we're not, if we're still a Russia, we should actually be bothered by that in a constructive way. Good? We shouldn't be worried if we don't feel the feelings. Which feelings? Of bliss and Hashem. Correct. If we haven't achieved it. As long as we're working towards it. As long as we're working towards it. But if you haven't achieved the state of not sinning, then you should be worried. Yes, you should. You should not be like, well, you know, I did my best. No, like that's not. Because you're not trying. Because you're... Right. Now, now, obviously, the, 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 the issue boils down to choice, but then there's also the practicalities of how to implement that choice in an effective manner. And, you know, but yes. A, 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 a strong pounding of one's fist on the table and declaring that from now on I will do everything I'm supposed to do is not an effective way of exercising your choice. Right? We spoke about it in chapter you know, 12 and 13 about the different methods of the Baini of really tapping into that and also in chapter, first part of chapter 14, right? Being honest with oneself, being, making sure that we live life in a purposeful way. We don't just rush into things based on um, habit and instinct. Right? There's a lot of things in implementing the choice, but at the end of the day, it does boil down to our choice. Being a Benini is a choice. Being a Rosha is a choice. Being a Tzaddik is partially a choice and partially a gift. If someone's trying just to not sin and they're not working towards any sort of sins towards Hashem and, and they achieve not doing any sort of sin, that's not a place where they should be happy either? Correct. Because they have disregarded the obligation that they took upon themselves to be so two people could be look like they're in the same place, but one be in a good place and one technically not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Nevertheless, okay, there's this thing about you know focusing on Torah study, which Torah study is a very important mitzvah, uh, but I'm not going to dwell on that for completely gender-biased reasons. Being that the unique obligation of Torah study is incumbent upon. That's right. So we're just going to move on because we're limited in our time and I want to talk about things that are relevant to the entire class, not just egotistically focused on myself. Okay. Nevertheless, a person must set aside specific periods in which to commune with his soul in order to cultivate the abhorrence of evil. Okay. Now. This, there's an expression that the Altarba uses from time to time um, where he says that a person needs to the the, the, the The person needs to establish times. I want to talk about establishing times. There are things that are very useful when done in a planned out, intentional way, but are very destructive when are done in a haphazard way, such as cutting people's bodies open. Right? What do we call it when people cut other people's bodies open in a pre-planned, constructive way? Surgery. Surgery, right? Otherwise, we call it 
Well, not necessarily. It just it could just, what mutilation, assault, possibly homicide. Right? It's very, it's a very big difference. Right? Um, similarly, asking a question. A question is something that should only be used when. What? Right. I, I, my, 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 my feeling in life is that um, asking questions is like using a knife. If you think about it ahead of time and decide that asking this question is constructive, then by all means one should ask. But waving around knives like this is just, you know, someone's going to get hurt. And just waving around questions at random as they occur to you is a good way to cause all sorts of mental and emotional mayhem in your and other people's lives. Okay. Really? Questions? Yes. yes. Why? Watch. Okay. Okay. Teacher. Yes. How do we know that the Alter Rebbe wasn't just making all this stuff up? Interesting question, right? Guess what? Was that the topic of the class? So now, if I answer the question, what happens to the class? It's a class. It, it, you're going to digress from the topic. Right. And that can disrupt people's learnings, including the, including the question. Now, does that mean the question per se is illegitimate? No. Right. Timing is inappropriate. Also, right, um, some questions, by the way, if you think them through, they're not really good questions because you already have the answer. Some questions are not really good questions because what you're trying to do is trip somebody up just for the sake of tripping them up, not because you're trying to evaluate them because you're like, I mentioned yesterday. Sometimes questions... Um, or you're just going around to see if you can rile up disagreement among people, right? You remember this idea that somebody goes to an authority figure and asks them a question they already asked to a different authority figure, and then once they give it an answer, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so or Rabbitson so-and-so said the opposite, right? These kinds of questions are... So questions just haphazardly being used without any real thought as to what the purpose of asking the question is can be destructive. Okay. There are things that the Alter recommends in Tanya which are constructive only when you schedule them in on the calendar. But if you do them in a haphazard manner, are very destructive. I'm going to use as an example, and we'll go back to here, something Alter mentions later on. Feeling bad because you have sinned. Is the Alter in favor of that or against that? Per se, just on its own. If you have sinned, should you feel and bad. Bad is mean just negative feelings. I don't want to get into it. You shouldn't feel this feeling. Negative feelings. Your choices are positive feelings that you sinned, emotional indifference to the fact that you sinned, or negative feelings towards your sin. Which one should you have? Negative feelings. I'll just make it very clear. Negative feelings towards the fact that you have sinned, that's a good thing. The stronger the negative feeling, the better or the worse? The better. That being said, negative feelings towards the fact that we have sinned, if they are not scheduled in advance, it's just it's, it, it, it is, it is, I, I don't want to right now focus on where it comes from. They're negative. They're destructive. Right. And the author makes a very simple argument as to why. If you are having these negative feelings while you are engaged in service of Hashem. By service of Hashem, we mean actual religious worship, the study of Torah, the performance of concrete mitzvahs, prayer, whatever the case might be. Those things are all required to be done in a state of joy. And can you be feeling negative feelings while being in a state of joy? No. Okay. And what if you were engaged in mundane things? Grocery shopping, 
mowing your lawn, doing your taxes, driving to the passport office. Are these things necessarily need to be done in a state of joy? They do not. But if you are in this state, feelings that just occurred to you, the negative feelings, they are not rooted in awareness of the gravity of the sin. They're not rooted in a sense of God because you've done nothing to prompt an awareness of God. And so therefore they must be coming from somewhere else and thus they must be part of sort of strategy leading a person into a state where they feel um, down. And when people feel down, they make poor choices about how to deal with such things. So Alkaba's point is negative feelings regarding having sinned have to be scheduled in the calendar that I am going to at this day, at this time, focus on God and the gravity of sin. And as a result, whatever negative feelings arise from that, arise from that, and hopefully that will be a healing process. In a similar vein, what the altar is going to describe here is something which you have to schedule. If you do not schedule it, if you just approach this haphazardly, it is going to be very destructive. We're gonna keep reading. We're gonna read very quickly just to get the main thrust of the idea. And then I'm going to ask you to think of why this is something you need to schedule and you can't just do haphazardly. Why it would be destructive to schedule, to not schedule. So you should commune with your soul and the abhorrence of evil. For example, reminding himself the admonition of our sages that a woman is a vessel full of filth and in like manner. So too, all dainties and delicacies turn into a vessel full of filth. Likewise, all pleasures of this world, the wise man foresees what becomes of them, for in the end they become rot and worm, become worms and dung. Okay, stop. So what are you supposed to commune? You're supposed to realize that everything that is pleasurable about our worldly existence is in fact really bad, right? So why should you, why do you need to set times, specific periods? Why do you need to schedule that in? Well, it'd be so bad if you just all the time thinking about how, you know, all the pleasures of this world become rot and worms and dung. Elaborate. That's very disturbing. Like, it's very disturbing to think about everything that you can see, touch, like experience like that is just to rot. And so you're disturbed. And so what's the so problem? So what's the problem? God in a state of being disturbed. I mean, the tzaddik is disturbed by all those things. He seems to serve God in that state. What's the problem? This is the problem. The problem, okay, and this one the problem is not so much the psychological issue. I want to elaborate on it per se. It's like it's unpleasant, it's disturbing, it's it's it, it's more disturbing. It, it's more it it becomes it, it, it moves into something dysfunctional. Yeah. Okay? Right? In other words, if a person reflects, ponders the fact that we're just gonna focus on food, because I think that's the simplest example of this one, about how eating, you know, food just, what happens, how food gets digested, right? How food turns into excrement, right? How the whole process of eating is just staving off the decay of the body after you die and become a corpse, right? If you really, like, really reflect on that all the time, what does that do to your appetite? What does that do to your ability to eat? 
And that's going to be problematic because how are you going to... You, you'll develop, and I don't mean this in a, in, in, in a borrowed word sense, I mean this in quite a literal sense, an eating disorder. Does that make sense? Why doesn't that happen to Tzadik? Oh, which then creates the question is why doesn't that happen to Tzadik, right? So I would like us to focus, we're going to use the example of food. What does the Tzadik see as disgusting about eating? And what are we focusing on disgusting about, being disgusting about eating? Let's just first start there. Right, what he finds disgusting is the fact that it conceals godliness. And what does this person find disgusting about it? That it turns into... It's physically disgusting. Right? In other words, like this. I want to give you an example of the difference between the disgust that a tzaddik would experience towards eating and that the benini, the non-tzaddik, would, could, could get himself to experience towards eating by using a, a non-spiritual example. Okay? There is a kind of thing that you can do um, where you can realize that life is short. Life is short. Okay. Um, in fact, we can actually do this calculation because it's, it's, it works better if you do it in real life. Okay. So anyone will... Let's see. Let's just assume right now you're all 20 years old. You're not, but we're just going to assume that for argument's sake, Okay. And what's life expectancy for a female in the Western world approximately? What? 86. 86. Really? Moving up in the world, okay. It's, it's, big, it's more than men. What's men? 70. 70-something, I think. Yeah. 82 in the Western world, yeah. Okay. Depends which country. Men always have shorter life expectancies than women. Um, well, in, in, part of it has to do with the fact that jobs that kill people tend to be given to men. Part of that has to do is that men tend to overall engage in more reckless behavior. And part of that has to do with the fact that the death associated with pregnancy and childbirth has greatly been reduced in the past 100 years. Yeah? I think that basically covers it. What? There may be genetic differences, but I don't know how I'm thinking. Yeah, but that's probably because men are doing activities. <laughs> Men, men, tend to do, men tend to do activities that, that get people struck by lightning more than women. Like, like playing golf in a rainstorm. Okay, but if you can, that you really can't go against. What? You can, by not going outside. Do not play golf. Do not play golf in a thunderstorm. Why? Like, when was the last time you heard someone playing golf in a thunderstorm? And if you would imagine it, you would imagine being a man. Where are you supposed to hang a couch? Okay. All right. So, using the, using the calculator here, so that, how many years did you say we have? We have 86, so that's 66 years left. There's 365 days. Okay, it's already, right? There's, of those, there's our 24 hours, and of those, there are 60 minutes. So let's just go with that. Okay. 34 million and 686,600 minutes left. <laughs> it's a lot. I guess less than It's a lot. But now here's an interesting... 
But now, but now, here's an interesting thing, right? When a person thinks, for instance, they're preparing food, just as an example. And I think, wait a minute, what is the time ratio of how much time goes into preparing the food versus how much time I have enjoying the food? And what you will notice is that as the food becomes more and more, we'll use the word gourmet, the ratio of preparation to enjoyment goes way up. And it's like, well, I don't have an infinite supply of time. So perhaps I don't want to waste my time making sure the food tastes so good, right? Because I just feel that that takes away from getting the most out of life, right? Does that mean that they've developed an abhorrence to, to like preparing the gourmet food and eating it? No, what they have an issue with is what? How waste their time, right? A person who like really, really cultivates that is probably not gonna develop an eating disorder, right? Because they're not developing any negative attachment to the eating, they're developing an attachment to something which is associated with the eating on a mere technicality, right? Okay, so now let's think about tzaddik. Does a tzaddik have any problem with the fact that you take dead animals and ingest them and break them down and turn them into excrement? No. No, because when that's a carbon, when it's a mitzvah, he's fine with it. He's no pro- he's not, it's not eating being disgusting or not disgusting, his issue is, there's a, deeper, there's a deeper reality of what's going on. Is this eating a means of being connected with Hashem? Then it's delightful. If it's not a means of being connected to Hashem, then it is... Disgusting. It's disgusting. But the eating itself, the act of eating, is, is, is emotionally neutral for him. Right? Now, it's true that the act of eating has that kind of spiritual dimension to it. But that's all he's relating to. Okay? That, that, that we're going to get to the end of the chapter. Okay. So there's a very big difference. That Sadiq doesn't find eating disgusting. The Sadiq doesn't find eating hateful. In fact, how would the, what would be a good psychological analogy of how the Sadiq relates to eating? I, I gave this example once to somebody who's an older Hasid, but that's a brilliant example. What? It I've never seen this example anywhere, but I think it holds true. How does the tzaddik relate to eating? Fuel in a car? What? Fuel in a car. Okay, fuel in a car, but it's very abstract. I want something a little more concrete. How do most people feel about going to the bathroom? Something you have to do. You know, it's like, there's a, it has to get done. You do it. Like, there's not... Like, again, there's interesting, weird scenarios like you're really very busy in life and a bathroom break is like a thing or whatever, or whatever. I don't want to get. But normally, like, I have to go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom. Like, it doesn't carry a tremendous amount of weight. There's, there's physical sensation telling you your body needs to do it. There's physical sensation telling your body's done it. And it carries on basically zero emotional significance. There's not any deep attachment as a human being to that. Right? And if someone were to, were to tell the average person, you know what, like, here, your body will not need to go to the bathroom anymore and you'll be just as functional. Like, okay, fine, great. But we don't relate to eating that way, do we? No. So if we talk about the physicality of eating, what is the tzaddik's relationship to the physicality of eating? Negative, positive, or indifferent? Indifferent. What is his relationship to the spiritual dimension of eating? Well, if it's a godly act, i.e. a mitzvah, then he delights in it. And if it is an ungodly act, right, then he finds it despicable. 
And if it's something that's just needed to get to a godly act, then like you can just do it with any kind of emotional indifference. Okay. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually developing right, a negative emotional association with the physical act of eating. And if you do that in an unbounded way, you will become dysfunctional. You won't be able to eat. Make sense? So, so while this does, so, so now the question is, well, then why do it at all? Like, like, and I don't mean why do it in the context of how does this help, being, like, help you become a tzaddik, which we'll get to later. Just in general, like, what are you supposed to accomplish? Because we want you to eat. And so what are we trying to accomplish with this? Not to get to the point the person has such a level of antagonism and emotional resistance to eating that they have developed an eating disorder. So then what is what, what are we trying to achieve? No. Not exactly. Although we'll get we'll get to that a little bit later. What is our natural emotional um, attitude towards eating as human beings? Yeah, we take delight in it, right? If you get the right amount of negativity, can it kind of drown out the delight in something? Yes. And that can kind of approximate a degree of indifference and neutrality? In other words, the tzaddik has like a genuine neutrality to the physical act of eating and finds eating just as an act in and of itself motivated by animalistic urges as despicable because it's ungodly, but eating as an act of a mitzvah is, 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 is incredibly powerful. There's a, there's a famous story, the Rebbe's father, he was very ill, and the doctor put him on a liquid diet, no food. Um, this was in Kazakhstan. And it was close to Pesach, and the doctor noticed that there was some wine and some matzahs um, that had been prepared for Pesach in the corner of the little hovel they had as a house. And, and the doctor says, you're not going to eat that food, are you? And the Rebbe's father looked at him and said, what food? And he pointed and says, well, that's not food. Those are mitzvahs. Um, you know, that, that's a tzaddik. It's a whole different way of looking at something. What is mitzvahs, right? There's like being a cow. Like, to, to, to live as a cow is despicable. To, to do mitzvahs is, 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 is divine. And like, fine, that's a tzaddik. Okay. But I do have this kind of emotional bond with the delights of the food, right? So how can a person get themselves to not, okay, the food comes at the expense of a relationship with God because it distracts me, but like actually develop that level of this is not for me in some way is by doing this. But what that is supposed to do is get the person to the point that they're no, that, that, that they have enough of the negativity that it counteracts the positive attachment. But what if you just go overboard with that, then, you, then, then the act of eating becomes something that you can't bring yourself to do and then you can't serve Hashem because like, you need to eat in order to be able to function, right? And this is true with everything, right? It's true, it, it, in, other words, in other words, any human endeavor which is mundane, right? If we have a deep um, 
enjoyment of it, a deep, a deep passion for it, right? That is, we said from the animal soul, that is ungodly, right? So to be like a tzaddik, and I'm going to come back to the idea of like a tzaddik, but to be like a tzaddik would mean to get rid of that attachment, to get rid of that feeling, to develop some kind of abhorrence. But the way this person is doing it is that they're finding the, that act in its reality as a thing, eating or other activities, right? Whether it's making money or whatever it is. A person can by the do the same about making money. A person spends time thinking about what are you doing when you're making money? Sometimes I think about this, it's, it's mind blowing. Think about, what are you doing when you're making money? You're doing something to make money, what are you doing? See, there's a famous story, there's a guy who was fishing. And every day he would catch a big fish, sell it in the market, and he spend the rest of the day, you know, if it's a Jewish story, he went to learn Torah, if it's not a Jewish story, then he, I don't know, he sits and reads a book, I don't know, whatever. But different versions of the same story. I don't think the story comes from a Jewish source, but someone says, you know, if you keep fishing all day long, you can like make a profit. He says, and then what? Well, and then you can hire other people to fish for you. And then what? Well, then you can retire. Do it. Well, well, then you can like you know hang out and you know, fish a little in the morning and learn Torah in the afternoons. Like, that's what I'm already doing. Like if you think about a lot of what we're doing when we're making money is we're just substituting one thing for another, and like it's just like an endless cycle of like what's the point? In fact, people often get this when they get to a certain point of success in their career. It's like sometimes we almost feel like it's fundamentally empty. Like now. We don't want to get to a person to a point where they stop doing things that get them the financial resources to do the things that they need to do in life, right? We don't want to get... But the idea that like make, getting rich or making money is not like a life pursuit. No, that's not... Right. And so this needs to be done in an appropriate and careful manner. That needs to be planned out. Like how much time and to what degree am I going to actually try and cultivate that sense because I want to develop enough negative feelings toward this human endeavor that I'm no longer so emotionally enthralled with it while at the same time not developing some sort of pathological relationship with it that I can't do the things I need to do in order to function. That's not something a tzaddik is dealing with because they're indifferent to the material human component of it per se. They're, they're, they're reacting adversely to its ungodliness that, and that comes because of their profound experience of the, the divine bliss we spoke about of that Ava Batanugim. So they don't need to adjust it in the same way they need. They don't need to be as judicious in how much should I disdain evil? Because what we're disdaining isn't evil. What we're disdaining is the crassness and the emptiness of material existence. It's not the same thing. Does that make sense? But but what aspect? Of, but it's not the same evil. What we're abhorring is what? Like what are the examples that he uses? But what, is the same thing, but what are we abhorring about it? Like, what are you abhorring? Are you sitting and thinking about, this is ungodly. This is so ungodly. This is the void of godliness. Because the void of, like, that's not what the person is doing. What's the person being described as doing? Right? Like, I'm going to be graphic for a second, right? The tzaddik looks at this cup of coffee and sees no value in drinking it whatsoever. And so the idea of drinking it with gust and with passion just seems abhorrent because like, it's like, like, why would you be enthusiastic over nothingness, over emptiness? But if I'm drinking it in order to serve God, well, then that's okay. And drinking it is in some way a way of getting closer to God, say it's a mitzvah or whatever, then, then even better. 
Okay, but that's not what we're describing. What we're describing here, and I apologize for being graphic, is to contemplate how the coffee turns into urine and how the sugar in the coffee, right, turns into excess weight, which means that there's more to decompose when you die. That's not the same thing, is it? The first thing is not going to give you any sort of neurosis about drinking coffee. The second thing could if you take it way too far. Right, because the first thing, right, because the altar said the first thing stems from having the experience of Avatanugam, divine bliss. If you don't have that experience of divine bliss, of experiencing a taste of Gan Eden, you cannot find drinking coffee inherently disgusting because it's ungodly. You just can't. So you're approximating it by focusing on the crassness, the coarseness of the material existence of the thing. So you're being disgusted by something different. And that thing carries a risk of becoming dysfunctional. So it should be done in a carefully planned out manner. The other one doesn't carry the recipe. That's right. And that's actually, you see this, that when a person reads, and really, when, when, like, when the tzaddik is disgusted by everything ungodly, immediately everyone un- understands it as being like this. Like the tzaddik is walking around feeling it's, it's disgusting to eat, it's disgusting to make money, and it's like, no, the tzaddik's not. It's not what the tzaddik is disgusted by. The tzaddik is disgusted by... The fact that it's not bringing the post-infection. Yeah, the ungodliness of it all. But like, <laughs> so, like, you, you want to hear an interesting thing? The Rebbe Rishab and, and, and his son, the, the previous Rebbe, they went traveling. Um, and one of the things they did is they went to a museum, an art museum. I don't remember which museum. I think it was the, hey, the one in France. It was called in America. The Louvre, right? Yeah. Americans, they don't know how to pronounce French. Whatever. Okay. I think it was that, but it might have been a different museum. And they went, and, you know, I mean, there's different parts. Some of those parts are not so sneeze. I'm assuming they didn't go to the parts that are not so sneeze. But they went, and they, they, they sat, and they, 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 they gazed at the, some portraits in the museum. It's not a, it's not a mitzvah. Was he disgusted? No. <laughs> no. In each one, they found tremendous insight and wisdom in how to serve Hashem. They derived from that. The previous rabbi tells one, tells, tells, uh, he writes in, but tells one story where they were looking at one painting, and the painting was a painting of a wheat field. And it was like very vivid. I think he says the name of the artist, a famous artist, but I don't remember. And there was, on one of the wheat stalks, there was a small bird perched. And, and in the museum came like this farmer, and he's looking around, and he's doing not really paying attention to it, not really stopping and appreciating any piece of artwork. He's not cultured and sophisticated. He comes to this piece of artwork, looks and he says, that's, that's stupid, that, 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 that's a bat. Everyone's like, very feathered. what is this like, un- illiterate farmer's opinion of this great, famous you know, Renaissance artist, whatever. And he says, I don't know, and they say, what do you know about art? He says, I don't know anything about art, but I know something about wheat fields. And if a bird is perched on a stalk, the stalk is going to bend lower than the other stalks. Because the weight, and in the in the, in the painting, the stalk that the bird was sitting on was bent at the same angle as all the other stalks. Hmm. And the previous story was like this: I notion that that if something is real, it has to penetrate into the details. And he saw that it instantly as, as as insight into how to serve Hashem. So, like a tzaddik can a because they're experiencing the experience of divine bliss, their experience of reality is, is God oriented. So even a, quote, mundane experience can be 
a conduit into coming closer to Hashem and to seeing Hashem, and it's, it's a whole different thing. And so they're not walking around disgusted by every, everything which isn't a technical mitzvah. And tech, it's not true. But what they're delighting in, what they're repulsed by is the, the, the closeness to Hashem, or even deeper, the presence of Hashem that comes through or is being obscured by a particular thing or facet. That's not what we're describing here. This person, we're talking about a person who's blind to that whole dimension of reality, right? Like us. I can't look at something and see its ungodly nature. I can maybe see its unethical nature, its ungodly nature. And to be disgusted, therefore, by something I can relate to, which is like the fact that physical things decompose. The fact that our physical attraction to other human beings is literally only skin deep and not even the whole skin, just the surface of the skin. <laughs> you ever seen the inside of skin? I one time cut my arm very deeply, so I got to see the inside of my skin. It's not pleasant. I mean, you know, it's interesting, but pleasant it is not. Right? So it's, 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 you see what I'm saying? It's, it's a different thing. Are there? The, just a blind person cannot feel, someone who's been blind from birth doesn't appreciate darkness. He's not bothered by darkness. There's no concept of light. Someone who has a concept of light can be bothered by darkness. A tzadu who experiences divine bliss can be disgusted by the darkness when the divine presence is concealed. It's so weird that we're walking around. Like, if the only thing that's real is the truth of Hashem, we're walking around with blinders. That's Correct. Crazy. Major Hasidic idea that we are, living, we are walking around like blinders. Yes? Are there some things, though, that that we are certain things that we don't that we just don't want because they're ungodly like there are probably some areas in our life where so if you like zoom that. in on some subtle level some we have areas. that like for instance the average Jew's resistance to, to idol worship and converting to another religion yes that would probably yeah, it's be it's not like you see the idols and right. right the the, 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 the you know the, the, that kind of thing or sometimes you see something like just very mundane and like, it doesn't gross you up, but like, why, like I just don't, like why would I do like, That has much more to do with the human sense of purpose. Something seems purposeless and so it bothers you just the kind of emptiness of it, but it's not the same thing. The, 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 you want, I mean, once you realize that, you realize that like the, the godly dimension is just a different dimension of things. Just like say like the size of something doesn't automatically correlate to its color or the temperature of something doesn't correlate to its size. So how godly or ungodly something is, it's an independent dimension of things, right? I mean, I'll tell you an interesting story. There was, there was a, a, a tzaddik whose name was the Apterov. Um, that wasn't his name, that was his title actually. What was his, known as the Yisrael, the Apterov, what was his name? I think his name was Yisrael, but I don't remember. So he, he was large, large, large. And um, he had a tish. And he would sit at his dish and he would eat. And there was one time a Jew who, who heard about the Apterov and he wanted to go see the Apterov. So he asked which way to Apt, the town. And, and they said to him, you've never been to Apt before? An older Jew, your age, should be embarrassed. But I, either way, this is the way you go to Apt. He travels to Apt, he gets to Apt, and he says, where is the, where is the Rebbe's uh, base measure? Where is the Rebbe's uh, show? They say, an old man like you have never been to the Apter Rebbe Shul. You should be embarrassed. They point in the way. 
He gets there, he goes to the, the, the tish, all the chassidim are sitting around, and after Rebbe is eating, and he's eating, and he's eating, and he's eating, and he's just sitting there and eating, and eating, and eating, and eating, and eating, and eating. And this man is thinking to himself, came all the way to see, some, to see a fat man eat? <laughs> like, what is going on? And at that moment, he falls asleep, and he has a dream. And in his dream, he's living in ancient times, and he lives in Eretz Yisrael. And he decides he should go to the base of Mikdash. So he goes out and he asks people, which way to Yerushalayim? Someone says, you've never been to Yerushalayim? An old man like yourself? You should be embarrassed. But they point him off to Yerushalayim. And then he gets to Yerushalayim and says, which way to the base of Middash? And they see an old man like you've never been to the base of Middash? should be embarrassed. They point him to the base of Middash. He gets to the base of Middash. And what does he see in the base of Middash? They see Kohanim slaughtering meat and sitting there and eating meat all day. Because that's what they did in the base of Middash. Basically, English was a slaughterhouse plus barbecue. What are That's you saying? M- what? What are you saying? I'm saying, <laughs> when all you see is the physical act, all you see is... Fat many. Right? When you eat matzah on Pesach, does it look any different than eating matzah today? No. No. But one is a godly act and one is just eating stale crackers. Wouldn't a godly person not be mindful of becoming fat? Why? Who says being fat is ungodly? Because it's unhealthy and that slows down your capacity to serve God. How do you know? Because I know. No. Being unhealthy? How do you know? Because being obese. How do you know? How do I know what? That it, it, restrict, it, it impacts his ability to serve well, God. It slows down your capacity to just be like physically healthy then slows down your capacity let me ask you a question there's something called a rocket you've heard of a rocket before sure if a rocket burns its fuel very very slowly the rocket's fuel can burn for a very long time if it burns its fuel quickly then it can only burn its fuel for a short period of time that makes sense so which is better, to burn it short, burn it quickly, and have it for less time, or burn it slowly, and burn it for more time? It's on the purpose. It doesn't, actually. Well, if you want, like, severe impact. What's a rocket for? What is a rocket supposed to do? It goes to the moon. It's supposed to go up. Well, here's the thing. If you, if the, the faster the fuel burns, the more like force it has. And since you need more force of acceleration to overcome the force of gravity, like, below a certain threshold, it's just not worth having the rocket, right? And so the idea of preserving the rocket to burn for longer is not necessarily the most proper use of the rocket, right? It was an assumption that we make, even assuming that being fat necessarily shortens your lifespan. We're just going to assume that. Is that having a longer lifespan necessarily means greater service of God. Now, as a general thing, I would say it's probably true. But, you know, if you have insight into the godly realm of things, maybe you're aware that quality trumps quantity in certain cases, Right? Maybe accomplishing a lot more in a short period of time is the proper way for a person to serve God than accomplishing very little but maintaining a long physical existence. The the automatic association with physical health and serving God is not true. Now, when you talk about in general, in general, a basic normal range of your health, of being healthy, does enable you to maximize your service of Hashem, but that's in general, it's not in specific. And so you had Siddiquim who were incredibly fat, and you had Siddiquim who were incredibly malnourished. And you had Siddiquim who ate normally. 
and you would was say, the eating in it of itself spiritual? It for some, so, like, I'm asking you in the base of Migdash when the Kohanim were sitting there and eating all those those, those slaughtered animals. They ate that much. There was this a doctor on there was a doctor on staff because they would often get sick. What is that? I've never heard of this before. I mean, if there's a lot of carbon, the carbonists have to be eaten at a certain time; otherwise, they're invalid. So, if you have a lot of carbonists, they have to be eaten all by midnight. There's only so many Kohanim on staff. Plus, all of the meal offerings, all of the mincha was all matzah, and the doughy kind of matzah. I mentioned before that doughy matzah is really not lafa, not like lafa at all. Yeah, um, you, you ever notice that on Pesach, like eating matzah, your, your digestive system is not really filled with the idea? Okay, that's when you're eating hard matzah, which is easier on your digestive system. If you're eating soft matzah, it's really hard on your digestive system. Rising makes dough digestible. So now imagine you're eating chunks and chunks of bread that's like this thick, but it's unrisen dough. And you're eating meat. And you're wearing linen with no shoes outside. I mean, I'm not godly. I don't see the godliness in it. I'll be very honest with you. But like, I also don't see the godliness in waving branches around seven days in the year, right? Or six days we do it, right? Okay. So like, what this is talking about is it's talking about looking at reality as we experience it, which is not what a tzaddik is having. The tzaddik is experiencing this divine bliss and that colors everything. Once you've seen the light, all of a sudden you notice the darkness. But if you've never seen the light, darkness doesn't look like anything. So what am I supposed to be repulsed by with my coffee? Can't be the ungodliness of the coffee because I don't experience the godliness of my tefillin. If I experience the divine bliss when I put on the tefillin, then I can maybe be disturbed by the empty, the, the ungodliness of the coffee. But like, so what we're talking about is something very different. If, godliness is a different dimension of things. That makes sense? Does it make sense? Okay. So that's how you're supposed to fulfill your obligation to um, be like a, to be a tzaddik. A tzaddik is repulsed by ungodly things, and you can be rep- repulsed by ungodly things. But won't it be unnatural? Like it won't be coming from. That is a very good question. Okay. We are going to skip. Actually, well, I'll just read quickly and then get to that point. Conversely, let him delight or rejoice in God, reflecting the greatness of the ancient blessed is he to the best of his capacity. Um, he will then realize that he cannot attain this degree of uh, full measure of truth except in illusion. Nevertheless, I'm going to come back and explain this. He should do, put his part in effort to uphold the administered oath to be righteous, and God will do as he sees fit. Furthermore, okay, this is the answer to your question. Words, I, I'm doing it slightly out of order because... I, I think it's easier to finish the one idea even though there's a reason I'll tell but didn't write it exactly this order. Habitude reigns supreme in any sphere and becomes second nature. There is an idea that habit becomes nature. Therefore, if he accustoms himself to despise evil, it will to some extent become despicable in truth. No, that's a different idea. Which means, if I make it a regular habit to ponder the, the, the 
the reality of what eating is, using the example of eating, right? Vividly and as concretely as possible, in a way that doesn't ultimately create an eating disorder. What will eventually happen? Even if I'm not thinking about it, I will just kind of be in a more of a state where I think of eating as a kind of necessary evil. A kind of, okay, I can, I can do it. I'm not like opposed to doing it, but it's like, you know, better not if you could avoid it, but if you have to. You can get, a person can, can develop that kind of attitude to something if they make this kind of reflection a habit. And in that sense, are they kind of similar to like a tzaddik? That's right. In other words, on this level, which is having the, on the first level, what is Altar saying is that you should, even if you can't actually be disgusted by the ungodliness of things, you can approximate a similar attitude. Okay, that's one part of the answer. It's not the whole part of the answer. It's one part of the answer. You, in other words, right? If you know, if, if you have to do something, I mean, can, can I give you a controversial example? Okay. So in Jewish law, there's this thing called marriage. You familiar with marriage? Okay. So in Jewish law, in marriage, there are obligations. It's all built off of obligations. Okay. So there's things that the man is obligated towards his wife, and there are things that the wife is obligated towards the woman. Now, some of those obligations are, are obligations that you're obligated to, but you don't necessarily have to do them yourself if you can like, find a workaround meet your obligation, that's just as good. So what would an example be? An example, I'm going to give an example both ways. A man is obligated to financially support his wife. What does that mean? Does he actually have to financially support his wife? There's some work around. So number one is like, if he makes sure that someone else is financially supporting her, that's good enough. What's another thing? Another way he can work around this to meet his obligation? What? Support her and having a job. Financial support. Close. Or provide all her needs. That's big. Or support her. Ship her out as a person. What? <laughs> sell her? No. <laughs> no. This is Judaism. We don't sell wives, we sell daughters. <laughs> okay. They're me being controversial. No. Um, one second. One second. So, 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 so having her work, yes, but that's conditional on social and economic things. In other words, if it is socially acceptable for a, a woman of her social economic status to work, then yes, he can demand that she work in a social, economically appropriate demand thing. Or demand. 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 Really, if he's responsible for financially supporting her, he can demand that she financially support herself. No, that's not what I said. Now that it's pretty rare that that would actually that that, that, that would actually work, um, because usually that's not going to be sufficient. Um, another thing is he can agree if she agrees that she doesn't want him to financially support her. They can make up their own agreement. They can make up their own agreement as long as it works. For no, them. but the end of the day is like this: he has an obligation to financially support her, right? And so he could financially support her, get someone else to do it. He can. Some of that burden is incumbent upon her because she has to. Be, she has to. She has to. Um, if it's, she has to do work so that that can cover some of the burden. Again, likely that that's going to overcover everything is, is unlikely. Um, if she agrees to forego that obligation on his part, 
There's lots of workarounds, right? So, for instance, what is the Allah justification for the Kola lifestyle? She agrees. If she doesn't agree, it's not halach le'ak Okay, now we can do the other one. Now we can do the other one, okay? What is an obligation that the wife has towards the man? Anyone know? What? What? You started to children, and I said she can't really control that. There are ones that are a bit let's So, household work. Really? Like officially? Mm-hmm. Does she actually have to do the household work? No. No. For instance, if according to their socioeconomic status, it is not appropriate for a woman of a house to be doing work herself, but to have servants or hired help do such work, then, in fact, she is not obligated to do such work. He is, in fact, obligated to provide her with the money to hire the household help. See how so those it goes with social norms? Yes, yeah, social norms really affect the, these, how these rules are applied. Okay. Um, another thing is, for instance, he can tell her, like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. That's also the thing, right? At the end of the day, she has an obligation, though, to make sure that it gets done. Now, for instance, go to use the example of the household help, right? So if household help is something that's appropriate for their socioeconomic status, then what? She's still obligated to do what? Make sure that she has that help. He's just obligated to make sure that she has the money to pay for it. Make sense? Okay. So the, what you can do is you can work around the thing to get at the kind of the, the core issue, right? You can approximate it. And for those things, it doesn't matter. Now, there are things where this does not work, okay? So an example in Jewish law of an obligation that the husband has for the wife is that the husband has an obligation um, to ransom her if she is taken prisoner. What if she says, you know what? Never mind, don't answer me, I'm fine. <laughs> what? Is he allowed to say, well? Is he allowed to say, well? Uh, she doesn't want it, it's okay. No. Okay. He's not allowed to do that. And the idea being is that, is that he, is, he is not allowed to relinquish that thing because it is inappropriate for a Jewish woman to be held captive. And regardless of whether she wants to be held captive or not, that's not okay. And therefore, he has to make sure that she is released from captivity. Um, by the way, parenthetically, women do not have any responsibility to ransom their husbands or pay their medical bills, um, just so you know. Um, it's nice, but you don't have to. Um, now, there are, ha- so now, what if a woman is very high socioeconomic status and so for it would be inappropriate for her to do any housework? Does she still have to do any housework herself? So the is yes. That there's housework which is understood not in the context of um, maintaining the function of the house, but housework that's meant in, that, that's understood in the sense of the marital bond between the husband and the wife. The idea. So, for an example, is that even if a woman has servants or household help, she should still serve her husband dinner. She should actually put the food down. She shouldn't give it to someone else to do. Um, that there are certain activities which have a, which are more about the idea of creating a kind of relationship rather than just the actual function of the household, and in those things, she's not allowed to just hand them off to other people. Okay. So I'm giving you this, this, so when you look at something, you say, okay, well, sometimes you, you present something and a workaround is, a, is it allowed, and sometimes a workaround is not allowed, right? So the same thing here. So on a very simple level, with all the way saying, yes, 
Really, what does what are you what are you you are obligated to be a tzaddik? A tzaddik abhors ungodly acts, ungodly things, ungodly behavior, ungodly entities, and the real way to achieve that is to experience a divine bliss, and then therefore you feel this great disgust for anything that is lacking godliness. If you can't achieve that, you can approximate that sense of negativity through this other kind of mechanism of reflecting on how disgusting just the mundane physicality of life is, and that gives you a certain kind of abhorrence to it, which kind of approximates a tzaddik's relationship with these things, and that'll have to suffice for you. That's a simple, it's part of his answer. It's not the whole of his answer, but it's part of his answer. Right? So he's saying you're obligated, and if you can't do it Actually, you should at least do it in kind of approximated manner. You kind of got to work around. You got, the, you got the thing that you're not so enthusiastic about ungodly things, so it's, it's close enough. Yes? Is there any like, concept of elevating mundane, like in a, even for a tzaddik, that meaning it seems a little black and white the way you're describing it? Maybe it is. But mm-hmm. at least... Um, Let's say like the Bavich are kind of known for, like on the outside, like people who do that. But is that only meant for like? What, give me an example, because like I think very often, what ends up happening is that we, okay. we use slogans and okay. we don't unpack them. Well, give me an example. Of what you want to know is that like for real or is that okay, just like so advertising? Any like literally anything that's eating. Like, we keep using that example. If it's not Shabbos, it's not Yontif. Can you genuinely just? Can it's not like, let's see him as him. Can he genuinely enjoy it because he's elevating it rather than being like, I don't like this coffee. The same way the Reb, the Rebbe went, and it seems like in some cases he could look at the Mona Lisa and enjoy it. So Siddiquim are very, the thing is like that that would depend on the individual Sadiq. Different Siddiquim are, are shown different facets of godliness. And depending on what facet of godliness they're being exposed to depends on how they relate to different things. So one Sadiq barely eats, one Sadiq is gluttonous. One Sadiq spends all of his day in prayer, the other Sadiq spends his time chatting with people. And so the, in all cases, what they're drawn to is the godliness of it and what they're repulsed by is the ungodliness of things. But what they see and what they experience it varies. I mean, this is because Sadiqim are not monolithic and because... Hashem's manifestation is not monolithic. So, other than the halachic framework, there's nothing that you can a priori say that that is for sure going to be godly or ungodly. And it could be that, you know, one tzaddik sees the godliness in a particular thing, he's able to relate to another tzaddik isn't, and so he doesn't relate to it that way. I hear you. And that's why tzaddikim often disagree with each other, sometimes quite vehemently. They just don't have access to that. Yeah, like for instance, the, the, the Magad of Israel had a son who was now called Avraham Hamalach, Avraham the angel. And why was he called the angel? He was incapable of seeing the godliness in the physical. Hmm. He wasn't. He was incapable. Like he, 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 he actually. He, the only reason he ate, was because he was required to in order to serve God, and even that he ate far less than he was supposed to, and uh, it was the whole thing. His father was not very thrilled with his way of serving God; he thought it was a bit extreme. Um. Oh, um at one point, he experienced a state of spiritual bliss that, that had it not been interfered with, he would have just left this world completely. The Alter Rebbe was with him at that time, and the Alter Rebbe intervened by getting bagels with butter mm-hmm. and having them sit down and eat bagels with butter. And the emphasis on the butter. Why, why do you need butter? Because you're not just eating 
for sustenance. You're eating, right? Fat is an enjoyment. Like, you are connecting to the physicality. The godliness can be found in the physicality of the world also. And uh, the Magid asked Alter Rebbe, how did he, how did he able to, to do that? If he experienced the same kind of spiritual state. He said, because before I experienced that state, I never forgot that the ultimate purpose is to bring godliness into this world. And so no matter how, where I find godliness in other places, it has to come back to this world. So Tzadikim sometimes, you know, have their own issues. Some Tzadikim are better handling, some Tzadikim are not as good at handling things. So even if like a, a Tzadik, a full Tzadik, doesn't necessarily have that access to godliness everywhere, it could be like in a... Right. All they do is that everything they see, the, 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 the thing that governs the whole experience of everything is the godly dimension of it. But if therefore for some reason unable to see the godliness of a particular thing, they might be very abhorred by it, but another Tzadik might be see the godliness in that thing. And yeah, this definitely happens. He was his son? The Magad of um, the, right. But the point here is that you can't be disgusted by the lack of godliness if you don't experience the bliss of being in God's presence. It doesn't make any, that can't happen. Right? You can't, again, you can't be bothered by darkness if you've never seen light. Someone who's never had electricity is not bothered by when there's an electrical outage, right? Same idea. So the only way we can be disgusted by the ungodliness of something is to not really be disgusted by the ungodliness, but by the, 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 the crassness, the, 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 the foulness of just the physicality on kind of its own terms, which is what he's getting at here. Um, I mentioned this before in a question's answer, so I don't want to dwell too much on it, but that the mention here of women is not meant to be specific to women. I think everyone understands that context, yes? That if a woman was doing this contemplation they could substitute the woman for man. Right? It has to do with just, which is again a question we saw another time of question answers, is that there have been texts are written addressing men, even though the concepts may very well be gender neutral, though not all of them are. Right. Um, so, like, we can talk about that if you want, but I didn't go into it when we read it because I remember discussing questions and answers. Yes? Um, how, how do we, uh, as we're feeling The way we bring godliness into the world is in one of two ways. And when I say one of two ways, I mean exclusively one of two ways. Either by doing mitzvahs or, anyone know the other way? I'll let you guess the other way. No. no that goes into the doing mitzvahs category. If you're tempted to do an avar and you don't do it, yes, you brought godliness into the world. Okay. Doing mitzvahs. Helping people, that's a mitzvah. So mm-hmm. things that are not mitzvahs. Right, like praying. That's a mitzvah. Yeah. What? Yeah. But we, right. Right, that, that's very important by saying we bring godliness into the world. There's going to be things which are godliness in the world that we don't bring in, but... Are those mitzvahs? They're mitzvahs you're not required to do, but they're still mitzvahs, right? Like, if it's not a mitzvah, why would that bring godliness into the world? Like, what you're doing is not a mitzvah. I don't know the answer. Doing things so that you or other people 
can and will do mitzvahs. So enabling more mitzvahs. Enabling mitzvahs. Isn't that a mitzvah? No, it's <laughs> not. It's just random. It's not. It's not a mitzvah. That that is not a mitzvah. Why not? It sounds like a good one. The difference being is that a mitzvah brings godliness in the world regardless of why you're doing it and how you're doing it. Whereas doing things that enable mitzvahs, how and why you're doing it can affect how godly it is. It's very different. This is the subject of chapter 7 of Tanya, by the way. So. It's interesting that, that for most things, preparing to do something doesn't actually bring the result. Whereas, like if you do a mitzvah, you bring godliness in the world. It's not the same. It's not the same. The godliness that comes in, it's not the same kind of godliness and how it comes in is not the same. But what that means is if you are doing things so that you and your loved ones and your community will do more mitzvahs, then whatever you're doing, provided it's within the scope of what halacha allows, is being elevated. You don't have to like, right? You don't have to like make it you know, a mystical experience. We spoke about running before. If you're, if you're running because you know that when I run, I'm, I I'm function better and I can do more mitzvahs and I can be in a better place to motivate other people to do mitzvahs, and so then your running is elevated. You don't have to like turn it into a spiritual experience for it to be elevated. Well, this is where you have to be realistic. Because if the whole point, right, this is the whole thing is, this is what I'm getting at, is functionality we want to keep Right? Emotional attachment we want to get rid of. And the question is, okay, well, that's a sensitive, delicate operation. I'm using the word operation in the sense like a surgery. And you can't just go willing around and cutting random, right? You have to like, no, you, you, you cut too fast, you, right? so you have to know yourself. And you, know, you have to have a mentor. And like, <laughs> the idea that you're just, now, I, now I, I, I'm totally indifferent to all mundane physical human activities because I see how disgusting they are on their physical level. And the only reason I'm doing them is to enable more mitzvahs. Like, yes, you could, you could get there to some degree, but like you don't. And you have to be careful on the way you're getting there, you're not undermining your functionality of doing mitzvahs. Um, you know, if, if, if you, you end up becoming a crabby person, then you're doing it wrong. Very straightforward rule of thumb. That's right. Sometimes chocolate is necessary. Didn't we say last class how a common misconception is that people think that, like, let's say running is a holy act if you're doing it for Hashem? But what does it mean? I said, what's the doing it for Hashem? It brings God into the world, doesn't make it a holy act. Yeah, there's a difference. The holy act means that it's, it's, it means that the godliness comes in because God makes it that way. That makes it holy, right? So I, when I put on this film, when you light a Shabbos candle, it's a holy act. It doesn't matter why you're doing it. It's holy. Um, so. Well, wait. But if you're running in preparation mitzvah, then it is. Well, it becomes incorporated into the holiness of mitzvahs. It's a, it's a more involved discussion. So, you know, I mean, if you really want to live a life of closeness to Hashem through Torah mitzvahs, and all the other stuff you're doing is going to be elevated by the kind of default, isn't it? But if you want to live a life of worldly pleasures and, you know, material success and social gain, right, 
plus some Torah mitzvahs, well, then a lot of what you're doing is not going to be elevated. It's kind of like an overall picture kind of thing than the individual thing. In fact, traditionally, Hasidim didn't worry about a particular act being elevated or not. It's more like a holistic life thing. The more your life is about Torah and mitzvahs, the more the non-Torah mitzvahs activities are elevated. It's kind of like, it follows. You're like, I'm going to go make this elevated. Like, what? like, It fits in your life however it fits into your life. Like, Artificially pretending doesn't really change anything. Yes. go back to, I mean, I'm going to answer from the perspective of Chassidus, right? Mm-hmm. I think you go back to what I said yesterday, that we're a godly soul, right? So if you're in essence a godly soul mm-hmm. and in essence Judaism is godly, well then you have to just evaluate things from that perspective and so like, Chassidim don't go around in general saying this and this and this and this is inauthentic. It's more like this and this and this and this is authentic and then there's all the stuff which like is kind of crowding out the authentic part and so the question is how do you have more of that it's like if you have a room with a window and you know how much light you have in depends on how close the shades are and if the shades are a little bit open so you have more little light you have more, you have more light and so you know the, the, the idea of relegating someone else's whole Judaism to worthless um, is not a very Hasidic way of thinking and conversely, claiming that your Judaism is perfectly authentic is also not a very Hasidic way of thinking. The question is, to what degree is that truth about my soul and about the infinite significance of Torah mitzvahs part of my life? And it can be part of my life in very unconscious ways. You know, the, the, the Hasidic view is the average Jew who takes making Pesach seriously is actually motivated by very godly things, even if they're not fully aware of it. And even if their animal soul comes along and adds some other ungodly elements to the picture, it doesn't invalidate that. That's the Baal Shem Tov's idea about realizing that where the simple Jew is coming from is actually a very divine place, even if, they are there, even if the simple Jew himself isn't aware of it. Um, what Hasidus would have a problem with is when you start distorting what Judaism is about. That's what Hasidus finds very problematic. Like somebody who's going to say, the goal of learning Torah and doing mitzvahs is that through that, I get to perfect myself. Like, that's taking something holy and in some way kind of desecrating it. That's what Chassidus would have a problem with. But like, a person who like, doesn't have a Hasidic approach for whatever reason, the, the, the person who does have a Hasidic approach would look at that and say, like, whatever, wherever place the neshama is coming through, whatever place the Torah mitzvahs are shining through is authentic, whatever place it's not, it's not. Not any fundamentally different from where I'm coming from. And since, you know, I'm not really equipped to gauge the full beauty and depth of, of a little glimmer of godliness, I can't even necessarily say that I'm in a better place than that person. I may be more aware, but more aware is not necessarily going to be in a better place. What you can say is that when you take something which is value is, is godly and you make its value 
human ego, that Hasidus, was, that Hasidus like has a crusade against. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but like traditionally you don't find Hasidim like having this view that, oh, those people who don't have the Hasidic approach, they're their whole Judaism is invalid. They do have this, this, those people who've taken Judaism and made it into something about ego um, inflation, their Judaism, that, that's invalid. That needs to be, you know. But isn't there still a sense that like, it's better that people, that Jews do mixed even if it's like, For sure, because every... If you make it a fun Purim party, then it's going to show up. Because, because remember, because, because it's a holy act, the godliness of the act is in the fact that your neshama did the act. So it doesn't become less godly because we had cool music and fun streamers and like a band. And like, it doesn't make it any less godly that you heard the Megillah. Right? And if that's the way to get more people to hear the Megillah, then guess what? Those things become godly, assuming that they're pruned within the context of halacha. Even if, by the way, the people doing it aren't thinking about it. It doesn't matter the thinking. It's not, it has to do with like the actual reality of the place it has in what's going on. Like... If the reason why the person's putting on the cool porn party is so that people can hear more Megillah, and in fact they end up hearing more people hear Megillah, and more people are giving Shalchmanis, then it's all godly. It's like, by default. Oh. Everything that went into that. What? No, everything that went into getting the people to hear Megillah. In so, pursuing physical physical enjoyment is fundamentally flawed, but enjoying physicality, no. But creating a space where mitzvot are tied up in enjoyment, where you know that people are going to be doing the mitzvot because they are enjoying the physicality of the There's a very big difference between enjoyment and ego. I think everyone understands on a slight reflection that as enjoyable as you're making the mitzvah, you're, you're, you're pairing up two things which are not the same thing, right? I think we all understand that hearing Megillah and a cool porn party are not the same thing, right? We understand that making, you know, that, that having a delicious cheesecake and observing the halachas of Shubas are not exactly the same thing, right? There's an element of using one thing to kind of develop a more... In, a more positive relationship with another. I think that's something that like, even a child understands very quickly, right? That's very different than when it becomes about ego. Because in ego, you can start to think that that is the, that is the actual point of the thing. So like, the fact that you know, we'll give a reward for someone learning Torah only gives them a sense that Torah is valuable, but I don't necessarily appreciate it, so we're going to tie the Torah to like, something else, like a trip. But no one really thinks that the value of the studying of the Torah is that we get to go on a trip, right? They don't. But what happens if you start making it about that people can start really thinking the value of studying Torah is the fact that I'm superior to people who haven't learned Torah. And the respect that I get from that. You see what I'm saying? That's corrosive. So Chassidim are actually a lot more, shall we say, um, traditionally are very comfortable with the idea of like using pleasure as an inducement to increasing Torah mitzvahs in a way that they're very uncomfortable with using ego and pride as an inducement to mitzvahs. You see why? You see how I'm drawing that distinction? It doesn't have that same corruptive influence. I mean, after all, we, we, now, even that pride, it doesn't, pride is absolutely never to be used. It should be used, but there's a lot more caution with pride. Like at a certain point, a person grows out of like getting candy for learning. But unfortunately, the natural thing is people don't outgrow pride. Mm-hmm. 
And so and it can be very corrosive. And that's, I think, that's, that's the thing that traditionally all the way back to the Baal Shem Tov, you find Hasidim have a real issue with other approaches is are you just turning Judaism into, you know, personal aggrandizement? But using, using, using physical pleasure, as long as it's permitted, if it's really helping, so why not? There's a story, the, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, Chasa came to me and asked, what's going on in your town? He says, we learned Chassidus in Shul with the, the townspeople and we drink punch. Spiked punch, you know, vodka and fruit juice mixed together. And so, so the Rebbe Marash, he says, Chassidus and punch, they go together. Like, this is appropriate. So Chasa came back and said, everyone, Rebbe Isai, no more punch. And the attendance started to drop. <laughs> So next year he travels to Lubavitch and he says, so what's going on in your town? He says, well, there's no punch, but not so many people are coming to learn Chassidus. So the Rebbe says, so maybe it's better with the punch. <laughs> like, it's not like, you know, you know, you have to like, you know, like it's not, it, it, when it's about ego and self-aggrandizement, that's when, that's when the Chassidus, like, the, the, the Hasidic alarm bells goes off. Like, we have to be very careful. We're dealing with something radioactive. But, you bribing yourself or other people to do mitzvahs with a chocolate bar. Or something.